Today I want to talk to you about uh, our responsibility to God and what, it, what it's like to take care of what God has given us. Recently, I, I talked to a lot of landlords. My brother is a landlord. I know a lot of people that are landlords. And they have all kinds of worries that they have in their lives. One is what's going to happen if I find the right landlord or the right tenant, it can be a really good situation. If I find the wrong tenant, all of a sudden I get a call late at night, my housing unit is on fire because somebody messed with it. Uh, I know that there's all these companies that are popping up now saying, we'll take the burden of being a, a landlord out of your hands and we'll, for a certain fee every month, we'll help you with this. You see, because it's scary when you have something that you own, you purchased, and you have responsibility for, and maybe you're, you're having this as your important thing in your life that you're saving up for retirement, to now have somebody else in it that's supposed to be paying you something for it, for using it, but you don't know what kind of people they're necessarily going to be. And that adds a level of stress to your life. Now, it can be a very positive thing. I've heard of great situations where this can be a positive thing, but it also can be a very negative thing. And so Jesus is going to bring up a story in this that everybody's familiar with at this time period. You see, for the most part in Jesus' time, people were tenant farmers. They were living on somebody else's land. They were, they were raising crops, and they were expected to give some to the owner. They had a relationship, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Sometimes it was bad tenants. Many times it was bad landlords that were treating their tenants wrong. So when Jesus brings up this story, it's instantaneously going to be understood. And Jesus right now is speaking. Remember last week he'd been challenged. He'd cleared out the temple. He'd been challenged and they'd ask him, what authority do you think that you have? Today he's going to be more and more open about who he is and, and what he has. He's going to tell the very people that are going to kill him who he is and what he expects that they're going to do. He's going to tell them, I expect that you're going to kill me. I expect that this is going to happen, but I'm also going to tell you right now, this is what's going to happen as a result of what you're doing. The great thing about going through the book of Mark, and the one thing I enjoy, is as a pastor, we're always told, tell lots of stories. Well, if you use the Bible, the Bible has tons of stories. They're all stories. And it's just like every week I get here, and I think to myself, I get to do story hour. I mean, I should have everybody come up in a circle and we can do story hour. I don't know if that was how it was originally done. You know, and I could have a big book and we could hold the pictures up. It's a good memory for all of us. I don't know if you all remember that, but that's a good memory. Um, so, but let's talk about the story that Jesus is talking about here. And then let's bring up the principles of, of how they apply to our lives. So we're going to look at the story the way the disciples would. They would hear the story or the allegory, and then they would figure out, and then Jesus would explain to them what it meant to them. So starting with Mark chapter 1, or Mark chapter 12, excuse me, verse 1, and it says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now, this is going to be the most elaborate parable or story that's so told in the book of Mark. He's going to lay this out. He's got details here. And he's, the story about the tenants is going to line up with everybody here. He's going to tell a story that's going to line up. It's like telling people in Minnesota, it was a cold winter day. 
All right? And everybody's like, oh, oh yeah, I understand that. And there was a problem between, and then here, it's like there's a problem between tenants and landowners. Oh, yeah, we understand that. Okay, so he's using the language. Jesus always uses the language of his people that he's speaking to. And so he, he dug a wine press, put a fence around it, planted the vineyard, went into another country. Now, everybody knows, and I don't know this, but until I under, read about this, that if you plant a vineyard, it takes four years for the first crop to come up. See, now you learned something. You came on the right Sunday because you learned how long it takes to plant a vineyard in the Middle East, in case you've ever wanted to do that. But, so basically what happens is they plant a vineyard, and it, for four years it takes for this vineyard to grow. And in that four years, the tenants aren't making anything, and neither is the landlord. But one negative thing that can happen is the fact that those, land, those tenants are going to start to say, this is our world. We own this. We're doing all the work. But see, even look at the creation here. Who created it? It was created by the man. He planted the vineyard. He put the fence around. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built the tower. But the tenants are starting to feel like this is ours. And the other thing this is going to do, this is going to line up in, an, in a story that's in the book of Isaiah, where God's going to talk about tenants and farmers in a vineyard. And this is all going to talk about this uh, the, that his imagery here is simply saying the vineyard is the people of Israel and the tenants are the leaders, the religious leaders who are asked to take care of it. So he's going to speak to them again about a tenant situation and he's going to speak to them in language that they completely understood. Verse 2 says, When the season came, he sent out a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And, was, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the most common thing that they did was they would take uh, a form of payment would be a portion of the crop. For a new vineyard, we talked about they would take up to four years. A servant is sent. Now, we think to ourselves, if you sent a servant, and the word here can mean servant or slave, that you're sending somebody of low standing. But at this time period that Jesus is talking about right here, a servant of somebody held authority of that person. And the servant that he sent is going to come and say, it's time for you to give my master what he is supposed to have. And the treatment of the servants, you know, gets worse and worse. The first servant, they take him and they beat him and they send him away empty-handed. Then they sent to him another servant and they struck him on the head. There's two words that can be used there. Either that word, they hit him really hard on the head or they cut his head off. Either way, not good. Okay? And they sent him away empty-handed. I, uh, and, they took him and beat him and sent him away unhandy, and they sent him another, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. Notice they don't send him away, so he might not have had his head. Um, they treated him shamefully, and actually they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They treated him poorly. And he sent another, and him they killed. And with so many others, some they beat, and some they killed. The re- they are completely challenging the owner's claim to the vineyard and also saying 
bring it on. You think you can get money from us? We're not going to listen to you. And what this is explaining, and it's slowly coming to the people that are there, he's explaining the relationship between Israel and God. You see, because God, if you go through the entire Old Testament, Jesus would send them a prophet, and they would beat him, or they would try to stone him. Some they would even kill. And then what would, you, what would God do? Would he give up? No, he'd send him another prophet. And they would treat him even more shamefully. And he's expanding the whole understanding here because the people are starting to think to themselves, this story doesn't make any sense. Who's dumb enough, and catch this, who would be stupid enough to keep sending servants when these people are so horrible? Just keep that in mind. Who would do such a thing? Who would try to reach out to tenants that just seem to be absolutely horrible people? And God came to them with prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos. And according to the first century tradition, all of these had been killed. And also remember, John the Baptist himself came as a prophet, and he had been killed. Next, in verse 6, he said, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now the people are thinking to themselves, okay, this story is pure science fiction now. Pure fiction. There's no way, after all of your servants are mistreated, that you would send your son to try to reach out to these tenants. But he's saying right here, stretching the reality to show that it had a deeper meaning. God's last attempt to reach his people required a great risk which he thinks may reach the hard-hearted people. Notice, he did it because he cared for the people. And what had the people done for him? Absolutely nothing. They treated his servants poorly. They had not given him what he had asked for. They had done everything wrong, but he keeps asking. He ho- he's hoping for respect and good results. The one last hope that he had, he's saying, this is the last hope. I am willing to send the last hope that I have He still had one other. That's what it says. And also unique from the others. Somebody that's so unique, so different. And his final hope is put in the word when he says, finally. Finally, I'm going to send him my last hope and hope that they respect. And notice how much he loves his own son. He says, I'm going to send to them the people that have treated me nothing but poorly. I'm going to send to them my most beloved son in the world. His beloved son, everybody starts to realize that, of course, we as Christians start to say, we've heard that term before, and the readers of Mark realize it. Where was that said before? Well, at Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And I'm sure the disciples are going, wait a second, he's talking about himself. And then at the, at the mountain transfiguration, when he was up with the prophets, there was another voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And he's starting to say clearly and clearly, I am the beloved son. He is starting to make that claim that he is the son. Now in our culture, that means something different. If I say I'm the son of this person, you think to yourself, that's great. You're the son of that person. How's that going for you? It doesn't necessarily mean something. 
It doesn't necessarily mean that you have the same authority of the person above you. In this culture at this time, if you say you are the son of God, it means that you are God. It was clearly a statement of you are God. You cannot say you're the son of because the son of at this time had the same authority of the father. And so he is declaring who he is. And later on, the chief priests are going to pick up on this because when they're about to crucify him, they ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And what they're saying, we heard you say that you were the son of God. And this is where he said it. But here's what happens. Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is his, the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now here's the big question you ask about this. You look at this story, this doesn't make any sense. Okay? We have the son of the father who is in charge. We're going to kill him and then we're going to take his inheritance. There's been all kinds of scholars that have studied this trying to find some obscure law to say, well maybe they knew a loophole or something. What we found out is these people are just being stupid. Okay, that's the exegetical understanding right there. That's the deep level understanding. Okay, you've got it. They're not making any sense. They're acting like they're in control of their lives. They're acting like they can take something that they can't take. Okay? I've seen examples um, when protesters, there was a protester that was upset about uh, the Supreme Court the other day. And she was banging on the door of the Supreme Court building. And I guess they, they measured how many tons that Supreme Court building was. And she was like, I'm going to knock this down. No, you're not. Okay, you just wanted to go up to her and say, you're not going to knock it down. And there's other people that have made protests or other people that make decisions. I, I'm going to jump off of this roof and I'm going to fly. No. No, it doesn't work that way. Okay, you don't have that ability. It doesn't, you know. There are things that you just can't do. They are not actually acting rationally. They do not have a good case. They will not own it. Instead, they're just acting like they do. But obviously, the rejection here is showing that Christ is going to be rejected. They throw him out as the ultimate abuse of not even giving him a proper burial. They're going to abuse his body, and then they're going to throw him out and say, you're not even one of us. And we think of Jesus right here. I was given over to the Romans and he was mistreated. And he is laying out the case for this right here. And verse 9, Jesus says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will, and he says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus asks for a ruling on the case, but he doesn't wait for the ruling. He tells him what the ruling is going to be. He says he's going to destroy the tenants. Now, the tenants, we said, are the rulers of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the rulers. Remember, Jesus had predicted, I will be killed, I will be um, tortured by these people. And he's going to say, these are the people who are going to do it. And the vineyard, he's going to destroy their tenants, and he's going to destroy their system, and they no longer are going to be in charge. And so their whole system of government is going to be gone. Notice today that's still true. There is no Sanhedrin anymore. There are no rulers. There's no elders. There's no high priests anymore. All of this system was destroyed by Jesus because of their rejection. But he does say, you know what? 
I'm going to give the vineyard to others. In other words, I'm not going to go after the people that are, re- that are really being good. I'm going to give this vineyard to other people, and that other people is going to be the church. He says, I've got a better plan. When I judge the people that have mistreated you, I'm going to find a better plan for you. And verse 10 and 11, he says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus introduces a psalm right here. He introduces Psalm 118, 22 to 23. And one of the most fascinating things is Jesus has a habit of bringing up a verse that no one would expect. And I don't recommend doing it unless you are the person who wrote the Old Testament. If you're the person who wrote the Old Testament like Jesus, you can bring up any verse that you want. But I've heard other people say, well, Jesus sometimes brings up obscure verses. That's because he's Jesus. Okay? So he brings up this verse. And he says, this text has become the favorite for uh, almost every Christian used it afterwards. Acts 4.11. It says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 1 Peter 2.7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says right here, again, something that doesn't make any sense in a real story. Because how can the person who is dead become the cornerstone and become the one who is vindicated, and become the one who is going to become the leader and the foundation of everything. He is laying it out for them, saying, this, this is going to be greater than anything you can understand. The rejected one is going to turn the table. In fact, the word cornerstone is something that we don't even understand. Cornerstone, for the most part, we think of something at the bottom, but the word here for cornerstone is something that's on the top. It's at the top. And so he's saying it's going to be the most important stone, the stone that holds everything together. The high stone is the actual word right here. And he says, I'm going to, that who's rejected is going to become of this. And then he says in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, do you understand what the whole book of Mark has been telling us? That Jesus likes to take the, the people that think they're strong and make them weak. The human amazement and the unexpected work of God. The kingdom of God has been shown especially in chapter 10 to show a reversal of human values and expectations. He said if you want to be first, become last. If you want to be in charge, become a servant. See, Jesus' kingdom is different than we think. The rejected stone becomes the most important of all as in the teaching of Jesus, but also in the experience of the Messiah. The one who is mistreated. In fact, you know why Islam struggles so much with Jesus? Besides the fact of just disbelief, they say there's no way that God could do that to his own prophet. That's too disrespectful for his own prophet. And Jesus would say, you're right, it is, but I did it for you. I became disrespected because there's nothing worse than being crucified on a cross. Only the very worst people were crucified on a cross. Only the very worst people were thrown out like he was here. Shows the disrespect that was done to Jesus. 
the disrespectful things, the spitting on him, the torturing him, that was only done to the worst possible people. And it shows who God is and what he's willing to do for us. Verse 12 says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. He's talking about the rulers right here. See, the crowd is starting to support Jesus. They're saying, hey, you mean these horrible tenant, or these horrible uh, people that are doing this to us? You've got a better system? Let's talk about the new system. And the authorities want to kill him. They're seeking to arrest him. Earlier it said they wanted to kill him. So they're not trying to arrest him and bring him in for some questioning and maybe hold him off to the side. They want to kill him. For they perceived he had told the parable against them. They eventually, they fear the crowd. How did they eventually get Jesus? They paid off Judas and they took Jesus in a secret location because they knew the crowd would never let him take Jesus. And they stay in the background looking for an opportunity to take Jesus. See, this is the middle of Holy Week right now, the Passion Week. Jesus is about to die. He's only got a few more days to live. And here he is explaining the whole system of what's going to happen. So what application does this have for us today? It's a great story. It tells a story about what Jesus is. It tells us who Christ is. But how does it apply for us? The first thing we need to understand is God has great patience for people. And I think all of us here need to understand this. I think many of us come to church, live throughout the week, and we think we have disappointed God and he doesn't love us anymore. I talk to so many people that have been caught in sin or have sin in their life and they start to feel like God has given up on them. I have let God down and God has get left, left me down. And we need, to, we need to understand that God doesn't walk away from us. God has incredible patience for us. God cares for us more than we deserve. How do we know this? How many prophets does he keep sending and sending and sending? And it says others went and they were killed. Others went and they were killed. They were beaten. They were just, he is willing to do whatever it takes to get to us. He has patience for us. He loves us more than we can ever deserve. He looks at us, and we may wonder in our own lives as we see the sin in our own life, and we may think we're sitting here today saying, if everybody could see what was in my heart right now, if everybody could see what my past was like, if everybody could see that I'm still struggling with this sin in my life, they wouldn't want to be around me. You know what? God has incredible patience for you, and he loves you, and he wants you to know that you have value to him, and he is continually going to have patience with you. And I think that's so important for us to understand because the first thing that happens is we sin and the enemy comes in with the lie, not using scripture, of saying, you've sinned, God doesn't love you anymore, you might as well just keep on sinning. That's the lie that comes to us. You've already done it. You've already looked, you've already looked that wrong way. You've already told a lie, keep lying. You've already had lust in your heart. You might as well just, that's who you are. You're a luster. You're a liar. You're this, you're that. The lies come into the head. God doesn't love you anymore. Let me show you how much God loves you. A story, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and it's really kind of a sad story. It's the story of Jonah. And Jonah, very famous story. Jonah goes, he's supposed to preach to Nineveh. And he goes to, and he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. 
And we think to ourselves, well, why does he want to go to Nineveh? Is he afraid of Nineveh? Well, Nineveh, uh, Jews and Arabs haven't gotten along. They haven't gotten along for years, just for the record. Um, and so that would be one case right here. But he doesn't want to go. And then he goes and he finally is, of course, swallowed by a large fish, spit up by the large fish, shows up in Nineveh, we think smelling like a large fish. Just for the record, one of my favorite parts of the story, there are no places to say he was clean. And he preaches, and what happens? The people of Nineveh accept God, and they turn from their wicked ways. And what's Jonah's problem? We find out all along why Jonah didn't want to go when we look at Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry because they accepted him. They accepted God. And he prayed the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I've said when I was yet in my country? That is where I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, it was so much love that God shows, because sometimes people think, well, in the Old Testament, God was just there smiting people and hitting them over the head with lightning bolts and doing crazy things like that. No, Jonah's mad because God's too nice. And I hope that doesn't hit us, but what if God wanted to forgive every ISIS terrorist right now and make him a Christian? Well, wait, they're the enemy. Now, when I was a kid, it was like, what if God wanted to forgive the communist? Oh, no, not the communist. Okay, what if God wanted to forgive, fill in the blank, people that drive you crazy, people that are doing horrible things? But guess what? That is God. And he will send more and more and more people to try to save them. And he wants to send you. He wants to send us because he cares and he has patience. The other thing we need to understand is that God continually pursues us. Not only does he have patience with us, he pursues us. The landlord's optimism in sending his own son. We see the fact that how much God loves us by the fact that he sends his son hoping that his son is going to have an impact. And he says, it is my beloved son, and he is willing to sacrifice his son for us. God has endless hopefulness for people. God thinks more highly of you than you think of you. Understand that in your head right now. God looks at you, and he sees much more than you ever will. There are a lot of people who says, I'm just a simple this, I don't have this, I don't have this, I can't sing like Pastor Jordan, so I don't have any talent. I always wanted to be able to sing, you know, or I can't do this, or I can't do that, or I can't do this. God looks at you and he says, all I see is hope and wonderfulness. Now, I see a lot of garbage that you're hanging on, we need to get rid of that, okay? He's not, he's not looking at you and saying, oh, you're perfect. No, no, he's saying, I have hope for you. I have hope for you, and I'm going to pursue you. Do you realize that God sent his son to seek and save that which was lost? It does not say to stand in one spot and hope that you found him. I think that that's what we think, is that God's kind of a mystery, and if we solve the mystery, we get to him, we win the prize. Yay! Okay, that's not how it works. He came to seek and save that which is lost. And that means us. He is sending, notice the landlord here, is sending and sending and sending and sending. 
You need to understand in your life, God has been sending and sending and sending people into your life. His Holy Spirit has been pursuing you constantly. And He will continue to do this because He loves and cares for you. God's goal for people is to produce fruit, and He has patience with them. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, God's kindness, God's love for you, the wonderful things that he does in your life, the everything good that you have in your life is to lead you to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this comes down to the simple fact. I've heard people say, why hasn't God returned? This world is really messed up. I'm looking at my book of Revelation, Pastor. I'm looking at my book of Ezekiel. I'm looking at Daniel. I'm looking at this, and God can come anytime. And you say he's being slow. You know why he's being slow? Because he wants your neighbor to get saved. He wants your brother to get saved. He wants your son or daughter to get saved. And he is saying he's willing to be patient. He's not being slow. He just loves people so much. This landlord loves these crazy people. I, I, as I read this story, when I first read the story, I'm like, this is kind of nuts. Why does he love these people so much? And then I think, I get it. Why does God love me so much? Why does he care about me so much? It seems foolish to us for God to send his precious servants to a pack of murderers. But he does and will continue to do it for his love and grace. The next thing is we need to apply is that people continue to act foolishly. Verse 7, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. It doesn't make any sense. We think we can kick God out of our life and take control of our life. We think if we just get rid of God, if we just stop following God, if we, just start, if we start taking everything on our life, we can control our own life. We can own this world. We can determine our destiny. Guess what? That's not the way it works. You don't even determine your destiny where you were born. You were born here, not in Miachina, where there's civil war going on. I'm sorry, did you do something to make that happen? You were born with certain gifts and talents. You didn't make that happen. The Holy Spirit spoke into your life if you accepted Christ. You didn't make that happen. We need to understand that we cannot erase God from this world. We cannot can take control of our lives and say God is no longer in charge. Nietzsche is wrong. God is not dead. Okay? The, it, the whole thing of saying that God is dead and we're in control, that's, that's just not the truth. It's the foolishness of sinful rebellion. We don't take control of anything. If anything, our sinful habits take control of us. We either can allow Christ to free us from our sin, or we can live under the control of sin. That is the choice that we have. The last thing that applies to us is God is not done with his people. What a wonderful thing. He didn't just say, you guys have messed it up so bad. You've messed it up. So I'm going to replace all of you, and then I'm going to get a whole new vineyard, I'm going to plant somebody else. I don't even care about you anymore. God says, I'm going to find you better leaders. 
I'm going to set up the church. I'm going to set up the church to take the place of the high priests and the elders and the scribes. I'm going to take the place of all this. I'm going to give you the church. Optimistically giving the people the church. And some people may argue, well, the church isn't perfect. No, it's not. Okay? I've heard it said before, the church is perfect until one of us enters it. And then it instantly becomes imperfect. So if it's empty, it's doing great. And I, I, I've even told people, I said, people said, well, the church is such a messed up place. I said, why do you think the whole New Testament is written? Do you realize all those are written to churches? The church of Philippi, the church, the Corinthian church, now they're a, they're a hoot. They get two letters and they're huge. Okay? That tells you that church is a mess. But why? But does God ever say, I'm done with you? In fact, he addresses them at the beginning of the letter, saints. And you think to yourself, and then you read the rest of the book, and you're like, your definition of saint is a lot different than mine. You're right. God looks at what is in the heart. God looks at what we can be. He saves a remnant, and he calls on responsible leaders to lead and do what he has called us to do. But he also tells us what from this. If you don't do what you're called to do, I'm going to find somebody else to do it. You know, right now, the biggest place that the church is growing is outside of North America and all the areas that it used to grow. We used to send, Sweden used to send missionaries to us. Now we send missionaries to Sweden. We used to send missionaries to other countries. Now other countries are sending missionaries to us. Because God is going to work with who is willing to work with him. And God is going to pursue, but we need to understand that if we want to be in God's good graces, that we need to be the willing tenants, the willing people to say, we will take care of your church. God wants to send more people to Crossroads Church in Bemidji, but we have to let him know that we are going to take care of them. He wants more of his vineyard here, but I've heard it said, God will only sell, send you what you can handle, and if you're ready for it, and if you want to take it in your hands, be ready for it because God wants to do great things, but he wants his people to be ready to take care of it. It's God's church, and we need to respect it. It's not our church. It's not about us. It's not about our individual thing. It's about serving God. Let's not be foolish and think we can take it over and do it better than God. God's been doing this for years. He's way better than we are. He's way, he's, he sent his son he sent his prophets. He knows what's right. All he ever wanted these tenants to do, all he ever wanted these leaders to do, was to follow what he told them to do. He wasn't asking for them to be brilliant. In fact, if you see the people he picks, he says, I picked the foolish people of the world to confound the wise. So if you think you're all that, realize he picked you because he thought he could do something miraculous in you and show somebody up. It's kind of one of those things that kind of puts you in your place. So here it is. God has a plan. God had a plan all along to send his son. His son died and rose for us. And we need to understand that God is madly in love with us. He pursues us. He has patience with us. He understands that we act foolishly. He understands that the world is acting foolishly. But he has said, I have set up the church I have put you in charge and all I'm asking you to do as the church is to follow what I've called you to do. I'm going to send you the way. I'm going to give you the power. Now go and reach the lost and the people that are hurting in this community. Why don't you stand with me right now?
for our prayer ministers could come forward. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you've never made this commitment to him, the bad news that I had to give to you today is you're not in charge of your own life. The Bible is very clear. Either God frees us from the world or we are slaves to the world. We are slaves to our sinful desires. The Bible doesn't give a second, it doesn't give a third option. Either the world or God. Now God, we are servants to God, but God gives us freedom as we are servants. It's amazing. He's like he wants to come in. Okay, God, we give ourselves completely to you. And you start snipping the things that are holding us back. He starts freeing us. Instead of making it torture for us, he makes it freedom for us. So if you're here today and you've never made the commitment that I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to have my sins forgiven, and I want to be freed from the power of this life, of the, of the sin in this life, you need to make that commitment today and come and talk to one of our prayer ministers. But for everybody else, I want you to think to yourself as one of the tenants. What is God calling you to do? What is God calling us to do? What responsibility has he given us? What is he saying to us to do today? How is he looking at He's looking at this vineyard called the church, and he wants to expand the vineyard. He wants to send us the tools. He has patience with us. He has patience with people in this community. Okay, He has patience with the worst sinners in this community, and he wants to see them saved, miraculously saved. Are we going to be a part of that? Are, are we going to be that? And then the other thing I want you to think of is if you're here today and you came in thinking, I'm not loved by God, I'm on the lower tier with God, God, I want you just to drive that out of your head. And let's say, God, I'm giving that all over to you. I realize how much hope you have for me. How much you want to get sin out of my life. How much you hate the sin in my life so much, that you, but you love me enough to want to get that out of my life. But you haven't given up on me. God hasn't given up on anybody. The worst and most vilest offender has not been given up by God. Don't give up on yourself and don't give up on your neighbor. Trust in God. Lord, I thank you today. I thank you for this message of hope that you have given us, God. And I thank you, God, that today that you have given us the church. God, we look around. We ourselves act foolishly. The world acts foolishly. But we look and we see the the relentless pursuit of God, the relentless patience of God, and the fact that you have given us your church, God, and new leadership, and you want to see this town saved. You want to see what we saw, this missions project, God. You want to see the people of Miachina reach for you. you. You, God, are a great God that has great plans. You're willing to send your own son to die, your own beloved son, God, to die for us. But you did it so he could be the leader, God. He could be the plan. He could be the one that's the foundation for everything that we do. We ask you now to be with us, God. Lead and guide us and direct us in everything that we do this week. And let us be good tenants, God, that take care of your vineyard and look to expand it. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our prayer ministers are